0: turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 11. Gospel of John chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 28 through 37 as we consider the third episode in this glorious chapter, The Grave Side. John chapter 11, verse 28 through 37. Give attention to God's holy word. And when she had said these things, she went away and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house, and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises that are attached to your word. You promise to feed us upon the Lord Jesus Christ by means of your word. And so we pray now that you would grant us your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would bless us as we enter into this time of preaching. That your son might be exalted and that we might be edified unto eternal salvation. And we pray all of this. For Jesus' sake, amen. You know, it's often a common saying to say that dogs are man's best friend. And this is often said in contrast to cats. Now, I don't know if you've ever owned either of these animals. Uh, When I was growing up, my sweet mother still owned a cat, and so we grew up with cats. And I'm not terribly a fan of cats. Some of you may be. They're not my chosen pet. I would rather have a dog. But if you've ever owned a cat or a dog, you have experienced why we say these things about these two animals. When, when you're around a cat, they kind of don't really care. They, they sort of just use you for affection or food or a clean place to do their business. But when you own a dog, and and you have a dog, one of the things that comes out when the dog sees his owner is that the dog cares. The, The dog has a certain way of knowing how the owner feels. When the owner is sad, the dog will come and lay his head on the owner's lap. When the owner is happy, the dog will be excited and wants to go and play. Dogs have this natural instinct that we recognize. And we call it sympathy. Now, with dogs, it's not the same level as human sympathy, but it's a dog's ability to read our emotions and sympathize with those emotions that causes us to say, well, they are man's best friends. They have a a deeper relationship with man than cats tend to have. We're in the animal kingdom, likewise, in the world of men. When we are going through life, we experience generally two types of things, the bad and the good. We experience occasions of weeping, and we experience occasions of rejoicing. And one of the things that we learn as we grow as Christians is that our friends, those that God has appointed to comfort us, sympathize with us even as Paul the Apostle said, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. But just as dogs cannot live up to the comfort we need to receive from men, men cannot live up to the comfort we need to receive from God. You see, ultimately, when we go through these various trials of life, We do need comfort. And yet, the comfort that we receive from one another is not enough. Because as you and I know all too well, you and I are sinners. And because we are sinners, our ability to sympathize is hindered. Our ability to sympathize with one another is short-circuited, by our selfishness. Let me offer a little bit of explanation at this point. The, the, the principle of sympathy in humanity is something I think Robert Dabney has uh, spoken about the best. What sympathy is, is that when the, the Lord has made our soul in such a way that when we see an object of pity, Or when we see an object of rejoicing, something outwardly, a poor man begging on the street, or a young couple who's just gotten married, we see these objects and our soul immediately responds in an appropriate manner. You see a poor man begging on the street and your heart goes out to him. You see a young couple that's just gotten married and your heart dances with them. That is sympathy. And that's how the Lord has created the human soul. But, as I said, you and I are sinners. And our ability to sympathize rightly is disordered by our sins, by our selfishness. Therefore, we cannot offer the comfort that the grieving or the rejoicing soul needs. But what we find in this passage As we have seen in all of the other episodes of this chapter, Christ is glorified by the death of Lazarus. Christ is glorified in the first episode as the one who can read providence. Christ is glorified in the second episode as the one who strengthens your faith in the midst of trial. Now in this episode, Christ is glorified as the perfect human... Comforter. Christ is glorified as the perfect human comforter in the midst of the death of Lazarus. Now, in this passage, there's only very few brief points. In verses uh, 28 through 31, we have human comforters. And in verses 32 through 37, we have the human comforter. Verses twenty-eight through thirty-one, we have human comforters. In verses thirty-two through thirty-seven, we have the human comforter. Now, before we get into the details of this passage, a little bit of context, just to remind us, and set this up, it's, it's been a little while since I've been with you in the Gospel of John. Remember that as we're looking at this chapter, we are uh, taking it as A series of episodes. There's a series of episodes that surround the death of Lazarus. Verses 1 through 16 is the first episode. And it really centers around uh, Thomas and the rest of the disciples not understanding what's going on. Christ says in verse 4, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. This purpose, then, runs throughout the whole chapter. Each one of these episodes fulfills this purpose in a different way. Episode 1 is uh, Christ interpreting God's providence. Episode 2 centers around Mary, uh, I'm sorry, Martha, and her conversation with Jesus. And Christ is glorified in that episode as the one who strengthens the faith of Martha. You'll remember last week, that uh, not last week, but the last time we were in this chapter, Martha is probably the older sister. She's probably the more mature sister. She probably is, uh, was a mother hen to this family. And she's the one that kind of takes charge and makes sure everything is running properly. And Christ responds to her in a way that she needed to be responded to. Martha needed theology. Martha needed a theological explanation for what's going on. Now we turn to this third episode. It centers around Mary, the younger sister. Probably, as we're going to see in this passage, much more passionate, much more impulsive, much more emotional than Martha for older sister. Christ comforts her in the way that she needs to be comforted. And as we look at this first, we notice Mary has human comforters around her, but they can't satisfy what she needs. Look in verse 28. When she had said these things, meaning Martha, Martha had just given a uh, confession of her faith again. When she had confessed her faith again, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. Now it's very interesting that Martha uses this title for Christ. She calls him the teacher. I think this is a reflection of her conversation with Christ. Remember that when Christ and Martha were interacting, Martha says to Christ in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, will give you. And Jesus begins to question her and to draw out her faith in the gospel. Jesus actually teaches her doctrinally. He does, it's almost like a catechism. Do you believe these things? Yes, I believe it. I'm the resurrection. Do you believe this? Yes, I believe it. Christ teaches her almost through a catechism method. So she calls him the teacher. But notice that in the episode we're going to look at, Christ does zero teaching with his word in this passage. He doesn't go into doctrine, he doesn't go into any explanation of what's going on, but he does teach Mary a very important lesson. And that's why Martha says to her, the teacher has come and is calling for you. Brothers and sisters, I want you to be encouraged. If you are in Christ, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you send a trial into your life, that trial, the death of a brother, the death of a child, poverty, sickness, whatever it might be, that trial is not Christ pushing you out. In the midst of that trial, Christ comes and he is calling to you. Christ wants you to commune with him in the midst of that trial, just as he calls to Mary. The teacher has come and he is calling for you. Now, isn't this the temptation when we go through trial? Something happens, it's not what we want. This person does this, this bank account is doing this, and I want it to do that. This family member is on their deathbed. Something happens that we did not expect and in our flesh, we can be tempted to retreat, to pull away from Christ, to to doubt His promises. But Christ in the midst of this is reminding us, as He reminds Mary, the teacher is calling for you. Now notice Mary's response. Verse 29. As soon as she heard that, he arose quickly and came to him. There's several episodes in the Gospel where you can tell that the disciples genuinely love Christ. For all of their faults and for all of their failings, when you see them do things like this, this is their love for Christ. He hears this, quickly gets up, and runs out and goes to find him. Very similar to Peter at the end of this gospel, when they're on the beach, uh fishing. Peter is probably fed up. He he has betrayed the Lord. The Lord has been crucified. And Peter says, I'm just going to go fishing. I have no other ideas except to go fishing. So he gets in the boat, and then Christ calls to them from the shore, and John says to Peter, it's the master. Remember what Peter does? He jumps in the water and swims to shore. No walking now. Doesn't matter if I can walk. I just want to get to Jesus. Likewise here, Mary loved Christ and goes to him immediately. She goes to him, and notice in verse 30 the setting of this. Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, notice that, and they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She's going to the tomb to weep there. And there's a couple of things to notice at this point about these human comforters. First, as we saw with Martha, the Jews of Bethany are probably the best of the first century Jews under the Old Testament times. These are religious Jews. Mary and Martha have lost their brother, and so they gather to comfort Mary and to comfort Martha. They're gathered around her, trying to comfort her. But notice also, their comfort is not enough. They don't really understand what's going on. You see the question that they ask. She's going to the tomb to weep there. This is one of the one of the reasons why human comforters, you and I, sons and daughters of Adam, can only comfort so much. It's good that they're around Mary. It's good to comfort one another when we're weeping. But we can only comfort one another so much because our knowledge is limited. We might get a sense of what's going on in someone's life. Someone may actually tell us what they think they are going through, and we can sympathize and comfort at that level. But at one level, we don't know everything that's going on in someone's life. Therefore, we cannot comfort them fully. You saw this with one of the most famous examples of botched encouragement in the book of Job. Job's friends gathered around. He lost his children. He lost his health. He lost lost his wealth. He lost everything. And his friends gather around the ash heap where he's mourning and just grieving all these disasters that have happened to him. And then they start talking. Then they start trying to share their opinions. Well, you know, Job, this probably happened because you probably did this. You see how they're guessing? Just like the comforters here are guessing. She's going to the grave to use there. Secondly... Uh, their comfort, as I mentioned more broadly, the reason that we can only comfort partially with one another is because our emotions, our ability to sympathize is ruined by sin. Sin has ruined our emotional state. You know, as human beings made in the image of God, showing emotion is a very real a very human, and a very good thing to do. God made us to be emotional. God made us to have passions and to display those passions in the appropriate manner. One of those manners is through sympathy. We see someone that needs our help, our emotions rise, and that motivates us to help them. But these human comforters, because they are sinners, their emotions are unbalanced. Their emotions are out of whack. We're going to see that later in this passage. But for now, they're trying to comfort her. The comfort is not enough. And Mary gets up and goes to find Christ. Two applications here. First, if you are going through a trial, if the Lord is putting you through something, human comfort will not be enough. Fellowship with other Christians is not a means of grace by itself. What do I mean by this? Often you'll hear uh, Reformed people who who talk about the means of grace, you'll often hear some people ask the question, is fellowshipping with other Christians a means of grace? Now what do I mean by means of grace? Means of grace are the things... God has promised to you to bring you to Christ. The means of grace are the things God has promised to communicate to you the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a means of grace. There are traditionally three in our understanding. The Word of God, preached and read, prayer, and the sacrament. These are the things that God has promised by which he will commune with you. Some people add fellowship to that list, but what we learn in this passage is this fellowship, this Christian sympathy, is not enough. You need more than mere Christian fellowship to get the comfort that you need, to get the strength for your soul that you need. Now, fellowship can be a means of grace if the Word of God is present. We saw that this morning in Hebrews chapter 3. The author of Hebrews says that to avoid unbelief and apostasy, you all exhort and encourage one another daily. So in the context of being together, as you're speaking the Word of God to one another, fellowship can become a means of grace. But by itself, fellowshipping with Christians does not communicate grace unless the Word of God is present. Unless you are talking about the things of God, encouraging one another in the knowledge of God. Now let me be careful here, because I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that when Christians get together, you can't talk about football. I'm not saying that when Christians get together, you can't talk about politics. Or any of the other topics that are legitimate discussion points. What I am saying is that if you are going through a trial, you need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you cannot rely on human comfort alone. Human comfort will not give you the grace that you need. You need to go to the Lord Jesus Christ, and going to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will receive what you need. Well, what is it that we receive? Now we find the human comforter as Mary communes with him. I'm calling, this, I'm calling the Lord Jesus the human comforter, the perfect human uh, uh, sympathizer because what we're going to find in this passage is the Lord's emotions. We're given a window into the Lord's emotional life. His emotional life is an aspect, it's a part, of him being a full human. You see, as our confession teaches us, God is without heart and passion. God Almighty, who eternally exists, has no emotion the way that you and I experience emotion. Now, some, some people get this twisted. When I say that God has no emotions, people think, well, that means He's just a dead entity. That means that He's just this lifeless, unchanging uh, thing that has no no life in Him. That's not what that means. When we say that God has no emotions, we mean that when He loves someone, His love never wanes. When He hates something, His hatred never abates. When God sets his mind to something, his mind does not change. His life does not go up and down on the emotional roller coaster like yours and mine does. God's life is steady, eternal, constant, unchanging. So that if God says, I love you, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus, his love for you is not an emotional high. And maybe it will change tomorrow. That's not how God is. God does not have emotions. His love for you is eternal and unchanging through the Lord Jesus. But, you and I are not God. And God is so far above us that what I have described of Him is inconceivable to us. You know, uh, we talked about dogs earlier. You, you might come into the house and, and you might be in a good mood and your dog can sense, hey, the master's in a good mood. But he can't really conceive what's going on in your mind. He, he can't sympathize at that level. Likewise, with us towards God, we, we know that God loves us through the gospel. He tells us such, But We don't have any conception of what that's like. We are not God. We cannot comprehend Him. And because He is so far above us, His comfort is very distant from us. It's very hard to lay a hold of the comfort of God when you're in the midst of a trial. What we need is a human sympathizer. We need a, as the book of Hebrews says, high priest who is merciful and able to help those who are in need because he has suffered the same way that you suffered. He has experienced all of those trials and he is able to sympathize perfectly. That's what we find in this passage. Look now at verse 32. Mary, when she comes to Jesus, saw him, fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice the first emotion that Mary displays. She's angry. She's angry. You notice that she does not say what her sister said. Verse 21, um, uh, 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But, even now I know that whatsoever you ask of God, God will give you. Mary doesn't add that. Mary simply goes to Christ and says, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, she's right. Her theology is smaller. She's exactly right. If Christ had been there, he could have prevented Lazarus from dying. But as she goes to Christ, in the depth of her emotions, she complains before the Lord. She lets her true feelings come out when she's with Christ. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, God is not surprised by your emotions. You might be surprised by your emotions. I'm surprised by my emotions. But God is not surprised by your emotions. And one of the mercies that he gives to us in the Lord Jesus Christ is that he welcomes an honest display of those emotions in prayer as we commune with him. Mary lays it all in the line right here. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. He displays this anger. She also displays sadness. Look at the next verse. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping. Now, if you can maybe picture this scene without violating the second commandment. uh, Mary is there, and she's probably, maybe shouting this, maybe she's saying it very emphatically, through her tears. And, and threw her emotion at the Lord's feet. Have you ever wept? Like, honestly wept? Such that all of your silences begin to drain, all of your tears come out of your eyes, and words sound like uh, a broken uh, 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 garbage disposal in your tent. Like, you, you can't even put a sentence together. That's probably what's going on here. Mary is weeping and pouring this out to the Lord. All of the Jews who are comforting her, they are weeping as well. Notice there's deep sympathy. Mary is, is weeping and wailing before the Lord, and all the Jews are weeping and wailing with her. They're sympathizing with her emotions. But note that they are sympathizing with her, but they're going too far. You know, my kids sometimes, uh, they sometimes get loud. have to serve them sometimes And sometimes when, when one gets loud, the other one gets louder. And then the first one has to get louder still. And then it comes this vicious cycle where the volume increases and nobody knows what's going on anymore. And we just have to settle it all down. That is what I think is happening here. Mary is weeping, and now the Jews are weeping, and now Mary is weeping, and it becomes this torrent of emotion. Authentic emotion, legitimate emotion, but unrestrained emotion. In this passage, the, the translations that we have are a little bit unfortunate. In this passage, there's two words for weeping. The, the, the word that G, uh, uh, Mary and the Jews, when it says that they were weeping, is the word for wailing with a loud voice. Um, you know, snot coming out of your nose weeping. That's the kind of weeping that they're doing. In verse 35, where it says Jesus wept, this is a different word. But we'll get there when we get there. So Mary shows the emotion of anger, and she shows the emotion of sadness. Notice how her human comforters, they're sympathizing, but they're not able to offer the comfort that she needs. You know, sometimes, when you're weeping, you need a shoulder to weep on, but you need that shoulder to be steady. You need that shoulder to be a little bit stronger than you are at that point. You may not need someone who is just going to wallow in the, in the the pool of emotions with you. You need someone who will come and sympathize, but not all the way to the death. I think that's what's happening here with the Jews and with Mary. But now we see Christ's emotions and His sympathy operating properly. Look at what it says. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, He groaned in the Spirit and was troubled. First off, notice that Christ observes. He sees what she is doing. He sees what all the Jews around him are doing. And he's groaning in his spirit. The word groaning here is a word that refers to being um, filled with anger. It's a word that refers to sort of boiling over a little bit bubbling up with with anger and frustration at a situation. And it says his spirit was troubled. The word troubled here is the word that's used to talk about the sea being disturbed by the wind, the the waters being turned up by a storm. That's the word that the, the Lord's soul is going through here. I think there's two reasons for our Lord's anger and for his troubling. First is at the unbridled emotion of the Jews. Remember that as Christ is coming to the house, and as Mary comes to meet him, there's this whirlwind of weeping and wailing. It's, it's a cacophony it's of crying and weeping. And I think Christ is a little bit upset by this, but I think more importantly, Christ is upset and angry at the consequences of sin. He's filled with frustration at the fact of death. Now we need to to ask ourselves a question here. This seems odd, doesn't it? It would seem odd that Christ is disturbed by death. He is God incarnate after all. He is, as he said to Martha, the resurrection and the life. He already knows what he's going to do. He's going to resurrect Lazarus from the grave. And yet his heart is disturbed by the fact of death and the weeping of all the people. We would think this is not what we would expect. But remember what Christ is doing. Remember what Christ is teaching Mary. Christ is teaching Mary that God understands. God Through Christ sympathizes. God in the person of Christ, who is the perfect human, is a merciful high priest who knows exactly what you're going through. He knows all of the emotions that you experience at the consequences of sin. Now remember, Christ doesn't need to do this. He can bring Lazarus up from the dead right now if he wanted to. But what he's doing is comforting Mary's heart. He is teaching Mary that your brother died so that the Son of God would be glorified. And the Son of God is being glorified as a merciful high priest who sympathizes with you, who understands what you're going through, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to apply this to you. Christ had to become a man, not only to pay the penalty for our sins, but also to teach you through a living human experience that God really does understand what you're going through. That God really loves you where you are. That God sympathizes with the trials that you're going through. You know, sometimes when we go through trials, either it's chastening us to sin, or it's the Lord testing our faith and strengthening us, not necessarily because of sin, but to improve us as Christians. There are some times when you're in the prayer closet, and Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, that all we can do is offer up groanings that cannot be uttered. Groanings that have no words. Because our emotions are overwhelming us. And what Christ is teaching Mary here is that I understand. I hear those prayers too. It may not be a very theological prayer, but it's an authentic prayer. It may not be a very intellectual prayer. It may be an emotional prayer, but Christ receives those prayers too. You see, he's teaching us that he loves us and sympathizes with us. Well, Christ is uh, groaning in his spirit. He was troubled. He says to Mary, where have they laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then in verse 35, Jesus wept. Now, as I mentioned, this is a different word than the word weep we saw earlier. Mary and the Jews are weeping and wailing and letting all the emotions overflow them. This word that's used to describe our Lord is a word that describes shedding a tear. It's usually what it's used for. It's it's usually a word that would describe something like this. If you've ever been to a military funeral or some type of military parade or for military honor. They often have a section of those parades or even at the funeral where they give uh, some honor to those who have departed, some of those who have fallen into battle. They might play taps. they might do a 21-gun salute. I had the privilege to perform a memorial service for a veteran who passed and uh, part of his honors where they did a 21-gun salute just outside the funeral home. And there's something very moving about being at a military funeral where there's there's all this ceremony and solemnity, and there's all the honors that are recounted, and this uh, brother-in-arms who has died, they begin to fire the guns off, and you see the soldiers either holding the flags or someone that knew that soldier And they're standing at attention, but the tear is dropping down their face. That's what's going on here with the Lord. Everything is under control except a few tears that come down his face. Now, in a veteran, in a soldier, you know that the emotion is high when that one tear comes down. Likewise with our Lord, you know that the emotion is high. When he who is in control of the whole situation still sheds the tears. As I mentioned, the, the translation is unfortunate. He's not weeping. He is crying. He is shedding some tears. But it's not the same kind of weeping that all the rest are engaged in. They're wailing and just going way overboard. But Christ is able to weep with Mary. He's able to cry with Mary. And notice how the Jews respond. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And so Christ, as he sympathizes and comforts Mary, shows the same two emotions that she shows. She's angry and frustrated, and she's weeping. Christ is frustrated and troubled in his spirit, and he also cries with her. He weeps with the one who is weeping. But notice... His emotional life is not sinful. His emotional life is not out of control. His emotional life actually is very much under control. Even though he's groaning and troubled in spirit, what does he say? Where have you laid him? That's all that comes out of his mouth. You see, sometimes with our emotions, sometimes with my emotions, when, when the emotions are high, they begin to spill out of our mouth, just like Mary's. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The emotion's legitimate. Sometimes the words are not so legitimate. Likewise, when we're overcome with grief, we can sometimes uh, allow that grief to overwhelm us in public. But Christ keeps everything under control. Where have you laid him? Shedding along with Mary. You see how his emotions are in check. He's able to sympathize, but he does not go overboard with his emotions. Finally, the Jews say, Sullivan said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Now again, just like Mary, the Jews here have great theology. They are theologically correct. He could have kept this man from dying. He did open the eyes of the blind. He could have done this. He could have come when he heard that Lazarus was sick, and he could have prevented the death of Mary's brother. We often might think, that's what the Lord should do if he loved me he will keep me from experiencing sorrow. If he loves me, he will keep me from experiencing pain. Not so. Because if you don't experience the pain, if hard providences don't come, and the night of weeping doesn't come, then you would never see this side of the Lord. You would never see how much He really does care about you and understand what's going on in your heart. You would never see Him in this life as a merciful high priest, as a sympathetic Savior who is there for you even when you want nobody else around. Christ is there, frustrated along with you, weeping along with you in the midst of these trials. You know, in Psalm 41, the psalmist gives a uh, description of this, of this dynamic. Psalm 41, verse 3. Psalm 41, verse 3, a psalm of David. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness, you will sustain him on his sick bed. I like the, the King James translation of this is better. It says, you will make up all his dead in his sickness. Now, the image here of the Lord is that the Lord, when you're sick and when you are dying, is the nurse who comes and changes the pillowcase. He's the nurse who comes and changes the bedpan. He's the nurse who comes and checks your IV fluids and checks your temperature and he's there nursing you and caring for you when you are on your sick day. But to know this level of the Lord's love, sometimes we have to go to the sick day. It's not because the Lord is angry with his people. It's not because the Lord is pushing his people away but even as the Lord said to Mary, the teacher is here, he's calling you and he has a lesson for you. That Hebrews chapter 2 is true. He is a merciful high priest, able to help those because he has been tempted, just as you are tempted. Amen and amen. What a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his sympathy for us in our trials. We thank you that he is the merciful High Priest who is able to aid us, having been tempted in all the ways that we are tempted. We thank you that he sympathizes with us, even better than those around us who sympathize. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to know these things, and that you would purify our emotions so that they might reflect the emotions of our Lord, and that in knowing him... We might receive comfort and even as Paul those we might comfort those around us with the comfort that we receive from God. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake.